Um, We are this morning in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is the story of the burning bush, and we could also call it the call of Moses. Um, Exodus, as we've gone through it, chapter 1 really is the continuation of the story of Genesis. We've talked about that quite a bit, so I'm not going to spend much time with that other than to say that Genesis ends somewhat oddly. It ends with uh, Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. And the question is, what happens? And it begins by letting us know that God's covenant is still in effect, that people are multiplying, and that there's still opposition. Because now a Pharaoh rises who's trying to kill off all of the boys, which has been a theme throughout Scripture. It's the theme at the end of Scripture. In Revelation, we have the picture of the dragon who tries to swallow up the child. There's always opposition to the people of God and to what God is trying to do. Um, And it ends with them um, really crying out to the Lord. And then in chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses. And we know that Moses is a fine child. He's a beautiful child. His parents in faith hide him and then for whatever reason reach a point where they don't feel like they can hide him anymore. So they put him in the basket. God miraculously delivers him into the hands of of a princess who raises him, but not before she gives him to to his mother to raise. And we don't know the time frame, but it had to be long enough for him to understand who he was as a Hebrew because he identifies with them. If he was taken as a small child, I don't think that would have happened. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, they say it's anywhere from 3 to 12 years old. My guess is it was probably a long period of time he was with his parents. He learned who he was. He learned that he was a Hebrew, went and lived in the palace or in the... Uh, he would, we know from the New Testament he was trained in all the wisdom of the pharaohs. Just walk right across the front. That's fine. <laughs> all right. Um, he, he, um, he's trained in the wisdom and a knowledge of the pharaohs. He has all of that training. And at 40 years of age, he comes back and he identifies with the people of God. And he makes a mess of it, right? He comes back and he kills an Egyptian. And then he tries to mediate a dispute. And the person who's at fault in the dispute throws that back at him. And he flees and he goes to Midian. And we get to get introduced to Moses. And the New Testament fills in a lot of those details, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, The one thing that I see in Moses' character in chapter 2 is that he is, oppression bothers him. Injustice bothers him. Because there's three events told, and they all have to do with injustice. An uh, uh, Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he stands up and says, stop. Well, he does more than just stand up and say, stop. He kills the guy, but um, is, don't do that. And then two Hebrews fighting where one is clearly in the wrong. And then he goes to Midian and the daughter of Raul or Jethro has seven daughters and they fill up the water trough and the sheep come and the male shepherds chase them away and let their, their animals drink first. And then they draw the water again, and another group does that. And Moses says, this is wrong, stands up to them. And at least that one goes well. And he gets his wife, 
Zipporah, and he has a son, Gershom, and that's where we kind of end it. Now, chapter 3, if we are introduced to Moses in chapter 2, um, I think the real key on chapter 3 is that we're going to be reintroduced to God. Um, there's a lot about Moses in here, but really the point is us getting to see who God is in chapter 3. Um, I think it begins actually in chapter 2, verse 23, because it says, During those many days, this is Exodus 2:23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then we move into the story of the burning bush. So let's go ahead and read chapter 3 together, and then we'll move through that. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, <coughs> the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, saw that he turned to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here, am I, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, <coughs> to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Um, Very familiar passage. We know the passage pretty well. Um, We have Moses. Well, let's let's do this, because I I do want to focus on on who God is in this passage and what he reveals about himself. So I did this um, in the interest of time. We could ask you for what we learn about God in Genesis, but I actually read through, read through Genesis, um, skimmed it, and pulled out everything that it says kind of new about God as you go through. So uh, if, if I miss anything, let me know. This is what we already know about God, if you've, already, if you've read Genesis. Uh, God is the creator. He appears to be more than just a single entity in the sense that he talks about himself in the plural and he creates man in his image. I think you get the, the, the idea of the Trinity being developed even in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Uh, we know that what he creates is good, which we mean that he would be good. Um, God is willing to command. Um, he desires relationship with man and he seeks to, dest- uh, to restore that relationship when it's broken, both in covering the, um, the uh, Adam and Eve and also in making prophecies about what's to come. Um, he chooses how he's to be worshiped and he judges when people don't worship him the way they're supposed to. Um, God is grieved at man's sin. God establishes covenants um, we know he has a covenant with Adam and then a covenant with Noah, or it's actually with the whole earth, but it's Noah's covenant. And he has a covenant, of course, with Abraham. And God keeps his covenants. Um, one of the big ideas is that God chooses. He chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he is a shield to those who trust in him. This is a big one. He declares Abraham to be righteous. He's the God who can declare that a person is righteous. Um, God knows the future. Um, God is a God who sees. In fact, actually, there's a number of names of God. Um, God is the God who sees. God is the God who hears. God is the everlasting God. God is the God who provides. Um, and then toward the end of the, the book, we find that God is presented as the almighty God, the God who orchestrates events, and the guy who, God who is in control of history because he is moving things. We see that in the Joseph story, okay? So we already know a lot about God, but the people have been in captivity for 200 years, and in a sense, God is reintroducing himself to his people. So keep that in mind as we go through. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Um, And he brings his flock back to the west side of the wilderness, and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. So that's the introduction. Um, 
This is a big step down for Moses. He has been tending sheep for 40 years. Do you remember what the Egyptians thought of shepherds? They thought of them as abominations. Yeah, basically shepherd was, that was not a highly valued profession. So Moses has been raised in the court of Pharaoh. And when he flees, he ends up as a shepherd. That's like going from the very highest to the very lowest. Um, God made him a shepherd because he's going to have to shepherd the people of God. And my guess is it isn't a whole lot different, right? Uh, I've never been a shepherd, but from the stories that I hear, they wander off, they do stupid things. You're, I mean, right? They're just not... They're just not easy to shepherd, easy to lead. And that's what he is going to be doing when he becomes, becomes the leader of the people of God. Um, I said it a couple weeks ago, but it, it seems as though God gave Moses perfect training. He had all the intelligence and all the ability to read and write and, and think and all of that stuff. But there were things that he probably needed to either unlearn or needed to learn. And that 40 years shepherding sheep was probably one of the most important trainings for what he was going to be doing. For 40 years, you're out there. I've never been a shepherd, but my guess is pretty solitary. You have a lot of time to think, a lot of time to process. Uh, he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Everybody understand what mountain that is? This is Mount Sinai. He's going to come back to this mountain as they are uh, coming out. This is where... God is going to reveal the law to him. It's interesting. Moses is going to have a vision of a burning, or not a vision. That, that, it, that was a total slip of the tongue. It's not a vision. It's a miracle. He, has, he sees a miracle of a burning bush. The people of God are going to see the mountain smoking and on fire. There's a symbolism here. What Moses sees now, the entire nation of Israel will see later. Um, and, by the way, note that it's called the mountain of God. That's probably an editorial comment in a sense. It's known as the mountain of God after Mount Sinai. But at this point, it's just a mountain. But here is this burning bush. Now, everybody here believe the burning bush is a miracle? Okay. Those of you who aren't shaking your heads, I'm kind of concerned about you. But um, <coughs> it's interesting when you do study on this and you start reading it, you find out, that there's all these wacky ideas of what this is. Some say it's a, a, a bush with red berries. It's like, yeah, as if Moses is going to fall for, for that. Or that it was lightning that struck. It's like, okay, but lightning's pretty quick, and you've seen it before. And uh, one of the authors of one of the books that I have says that when he was over in that part of the world, um, he went to a place where they were selling original ashes from the burning bush. He's like, well, wait, <coughs> wait a minute. The bush was not consumed, so how did you get the ashes? And how do you know that those are the original ashes? But people were buying ashes from the burning bush, so um, there's a sucker born every minute, I guess. Uh, but this is a miraculous event, fire in the bush. Moses is intrigued enough to stop and come, for, come forward and to see it, and of course, when he gets there, he realizes he's in the presence of God. God calls his name. Moses responds, and he's told to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. And this is actually, I believe, the first time we're told that God is holy. We might have been able to assume that, but I looked for it. God calls the Sabbath holy, 
but that simply means set apart. But this now, he's in the presence of the holy God. And, and Moses is afraid. Uh, he hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. Um, remember Jacob when he wrestled with God? His comment afterwards was, I have seen God and lived. So there was an understanding that to look at God was, a, was dangerous. Um, remember when Moses comes back to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai? He's up on the mountain. What does he ask God? Can I see your face? And God says, no, because no, you'll die. Uh, I'll, I'll let you see a little bit of my backside, but you're not going to see my face. You can't see that. So Moses is right in that. Moses, uh, when God speaks to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, this is actually fairly significant. Uh, that tells us something about our God and his willingness to keep the covenant, but also the fact that, that when God enters into relationship with a person, that person lives forever. Um, go to Mark chapter 12. This is kind of interesting. You remember the argument Jesus is in with the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? <clears throat> Mark chapter 12, verse 26. Um, <clears throat> this is where the man marries and has all the, ch um, marries seven or one woman marries seven men when she gets to heaven, who's, whose wife is she? And Jesus says this, but I, I'd never seen this before. That's why I thought this was kind of interesting. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? We are studying a chapter about the bush, okay? In the passage about the bush. Doesn't even say the burning bush. They just knew it as the passage about the bush. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is no God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus goes back to this passage to say to the Sadducees, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, now let's look at what we see about God. We've got that he's holy which is, I believe, new. And I could be wrong on that. I looked, and I looked in my commentary. I didn't see any place where it talks about God being a holy God. He's the God of the living, not the dead, and specifically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right. And now, even though we've seen these before, I think it's, it's important to see how God reintroduces himself to his people. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up to that land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> I think there's five things in there. God says about himself. Um, I'll help you on the first one. God, huh, I have to come back to it. I forget which order they're in. God sees the affliction. 
God is the God who sees. He, God sees their affliction. And later on it says he sees their oppression. All right, what else do we see about God? God hears. He hears their cry. He hears the cries of his people. All right, what else? God knows their sorrows or their sufferings. And the next one might be just one. He comes down to deliver them. He comes down to deliver them. Isn't this beautiful right here? Isn't that true for you as well? Isn't that the story of the gospel? God sees the afflictions. Now, we're not his people before he comes, but he knew we would be. God sees our afflictions. He, he hears our cries. He knows our sufferings. He knows what sin does. This is Jesus right here, okay? God comes down. That's what we celebrated last week. God comes down to deliver us. Uh, we think of God as the God who comes near. And he has seen all of this. Now, it's been 200 years, or at least a long period of time where they've been underneath the thumb or the, the, the boot of Egypt. God has known it all along. He's never forgotten. It says God remembers his people. That doesn't mean he ever forgot them. It just means that it's now time to start acting upon his covenant again. And, and he makes the promise that he's gonna go uh, take them back to the land the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, actually promised to Abraham. If you go back to chapter um, 15 in Genesis, yeah. Well, on your first one, it says God of the living. Uh, he, when he makes that statement to Moses, he must, Moses must understand who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. Yeah. So, Communicating these values with them. What, that's been 400 years since, uh, since uh, Joseph? Or no, it's actually about 215. Okay. It's actually 400 years from when, when, God, ta uh, when God talks to, to Abraham um, and promises him a son and says, tells him, you will, you will go into slavery and 430 years later, I will bring you out. So it's actually about, been about 215 years. It's still a long period of time. That's since the beginning of the United States, right? I mean, for us, that's our whole history is 200 years, and they've been slaves for 200 years. 400 years. Well, they've been slaves for 200, or they've been in Egypt for 200 years. It's been 400 years since Abraham. Yeah. Uh, from the history or the stories or whatever that were passed down. They would have been telling those stories. Story of Joseph, the story, and then the, the, the whole thing. They would have had those stories. Adrian. Yeah, if, if, uh, if Abraham was truly going to say that, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is a, yeah, I am the God. Um, one thing to note, and that is that when when God does talk to Abraham and promise him this land, 
And he says, your descendants will go into Egypt and it, there will be a period of time, 430 years, because the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God has been waiting 200 years for the, the, for the right time, 400 years for the right time to give Abraham the land. When they go in, if you go to Joshua, they, will, they cleanse the nation of all those people. They either drive them out or kill them. And the reason is that God is a God who judges as well. And the sin of the Amorites had finally reached a point where God said, now is the time. It's very interesting the way God works all of that together. Um, so um, now in verse 10, we get the call of Moses. It says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I don't get the impression that's what Moses expected. <laughs> um, God, you're a big God, do it yourself, okay? But that then brings up something not completely new, but that God um, uses people to accomplish his purpose or to accomplish his plan. I guess you could go back and say, well, he certainly did that with Joseph, but Joseph wasn't exactly asked, right? Joseph just was put there. You could go back and say Noah did the same thing. He was called upon to do something, but Noah is really saving himself. In a sense, there's something new here. God is taking Moses, pulling him out and saying, I'm gonna use you for this particular job that I have. Now. We know why he chose Moses, or at least I think we do, right? Moses is the perfect person to do this. He's been trained, he's been uh, all the rest. But Moses isn't sure of it, but it is interesting because we understand that as well. God uses people to accomplish his purpose. God has things that he wants us to do for him. And in this case, Moses tries to say no and God doesn't let him, but um, I think sometimes we say no and God uses someone else and we miss the blessing and we miss the opportunity. So what's Moses' response? Verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now we could take that question a bunch of different ways. You could see Moses just trying to get out of it. Or you could see in Moses a true question of his capability of doing this. Um, there also might really be a question here, who am I? I mean, if you think about it, who is Moses? Is he an Egyptian? Well, no. Is he a Midianite? No. Is he a Hebrew? Yes. Yeah, but they kind of rejected him. I mean, he could literally be saying, who, who am I that you're asking me to do this? But I think it's more that he's remembering back. He, he had some idea that he was to be the deliverer of the people. But God may not have been the one who, maybe God planted the idea, but he isn't necessarily the one who spoke to him. So I think, personal opinion, Moses has been second guessing himself for 80 years or for 40 years. Because when he tried to deliver the people, what happened? They turned on him. They turned on him. They he got driven out of Egypt, right? And so now 40 years later, been, he's been in the wilderness watching sheep for 40 years. 
He has fallen from this high place as far down as he can go. And now God is saying, now I want you to go back and do that. 40 years is a long time to be kind of out of the game, to be watching sheep. And Moses is, uh, I'm feeling inadequate. I, I, I don't think at this point he's trying to get out of it. I think this is a true question. Who am I that I should be the one that does that? And maybe he's still afraid of being a fugitive going back in. Yeah. Um, who am I to do this? I think any person being called upon to do something for God is going to have that same feeling of inadequacy. It would be a rare person who would say, this is what God wants me to do. Man, I am perfectly prepared for this job. Um, if so, it's probably not what... <laughs> Uh, you probably misunderstood because God normally asks us to do more than we can do. Um, April has a very, very close friend who has a uh, severe handicapped child, severely um, mentally um, challenged. And when she was uh, early on, before she had the baby, she used to say, uh, God will never give me a handicapped child because I wouldn't be able to handle it. And she used to actually say, April will be able to handle it. You're the one who will get the handicapped child. It was just kind of a, I mean, it wasn't, it was, we were actually in a Sunday school class where we'd had so many babies and all of them were healthy and everything. And somebody said, at some point, somebody's got to have one that's, and so it was like, it can't be me. And then she had the child and she's, I've heard her teach on it where she says, God never promises to give us things that, he, that we can handle. He promises to give us strength for whatever he gives to us. It's not me being able to do it, it's God's strength that's working through me. Uh, Moses isn't, isn't being chosen because he can handle it. And God makes that clear in the next verse. Look at verse 12. What's the answer to Moses? He doesn't tell Moses who he is. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, come on, Moses. <laughs> you were trained in Egypt. You know how to speak Egyptian. You know the court procedures. You know how to lead sheep. What does he say? I will be with you. But I will be with you. The only thing necessary for God to use you when he chooses you is for him to be with you. That's really all that's necessary. I will be with you. I think all that Moses learned was used. I don't think his training was wasted. But I, and I think God chose Moses for a reason. But still, the key element is I will be with you. Okay. Um, and then he says, and this is fascinating. But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Th that seem odd? Anybody? The sign is that you'll serve me on this mountain. When does the sign happen for Moses? 
after he's obeyed, right? I kind of think of a sign as something which comes before, right? God, show me a sign. Isn't that how we use it? Uh, I, I want to do this kind of like Gideon. Right? Gideon, I want you to go and do this. Show me a sign. Lays out the fleece. But God's sign, I'll get you in a minute, Matt. God's sign to Moses is, after you have obeyed me, you will end up back on this mountain and you will serve me on this mountain. Of course, we understand what he's talking about. It's when he goes up and he receives the law from God and he goes up onto the mountain for 40 days. The sign comes afterwards. Jesus is constantly telling that to people, right? This is an adulterous generation. Why? Because you seek for a sign. You want God to prove himself to you first and then you want to trust him. And God says, no, trust me, and I will prove myself to you. It's completely backwards from the way that we're going to think about it. Go ahead, Matt. It's kind of funny how, uh, it's kind of funny how Moses basically wants God to uh, assuage his insecurity, but even though the Lord says, I, yes, this will be my proof, the proof doesn't come until after the fact. Yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, it's funny that way how... It's funny how uh, even when we feel insecure, the Lord says, "We promise, I promise I will do good to you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to assuage your insecurity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting, too, is if you go to the New Testament, um, what does Jesus tell his disciples? He commissions them to go out into all the world, and then he says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We are in the same position as Moses. And the sign of the Holy Spirit coming doesn't come until, until after that. Um, so, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question. What do we think? Is it wrong to ask for a sign? Um, yeah, yeah, well, um, wait, say that again. It was actually um, the servant of Abraham. It was servant of Abraham asked for a sign. Asked for a sign finding a wife for Isaac. Yeah. Um, and, and that one may have been a little different because it's like, show me the right gal. <laughs> And, and, and the, 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 uh, here's, here would be a criteria that would work. So... I mean, Gideon asked for a sign, and he got away with it, right? Uh, got, got away with it. I mean, God, God honored that. Um, but maybe Gideon was, you know, who, I, I don't know if I would make a categorical statement that's wrong. I just don't know if I would expect God to, to provide it. Um, yeah, and sometimes it's when somebody's really torn between, I don't know which way to go here. It's not really a matter of obedience. It's more of a, God, I want divine revelation as to what to do. And I don't think God promises us divine revelation as to what to do. In fact, what I would say is if you go to James, it says if anyone asks for wisdom, ask it, God will provide it. The, the best teaching I heard on that was, and, and then it says don't be double-minded. You ask for wisdom, then go ahead and trust that God is making you, giving you the wise choice into what you're doing. So um, there's a promise there that he will guide us and that he will be with us and that he will give us wisdom. Um, 
And if we put our faith in that, then we can assume that the direction that we go, if we've committed to him, will be the, the direction he wants us going in. Matt and then Rod. I kind of I kind of wonder, I think the big difference there is that the people who were granted, who asked for signs and were granted them were people who had already decided to trust God to begin with. I think Gideon was an example of that. Um, uh, many of the prophets were examples of that. The... Um, I think I could be wrong about this, but one I think one thing that's consistent in people who ask for signs and are granted them is, A, they have already decided to trust God with their heart and are looking for instruction, and B, they are not trying to work another angle. I mean, one thought that comes to my mind is how Jesus described Nathaniel as he came to him. Uh, Behold, a man in whom there is no deceit. I think what he meant by that is Nathaniel wasn't looking for another angle. He wasn't looking for something to use against Jesus like the Pharisees were. He was coming to Jesus because he genuinely wanted to see what Jesus was about. Yeah. I think it. I think it's more a matter of a heart issue than a than a condition issue. Okay, that's a good word, Rod. Well, look at the conversation that Moses is having with God prior to this particular statement by God. I mean, he's, God is telling him who he is. He says, I will be with you. So definitely there's something that's occurred, has to have occurred in Moses' mind that, wait a minute, something big is happening here. Something, I'm being asked to do something from the God who's there, and he's promising to be with me. And, and then in the likeness of God, God's saying, okay, now take the first step of faith and, and just know that I'll be with you. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me as we're talking about this, Moses didn't ask for a sign. <laughs> right? God just gave it to him. I just found it fascinating that what he gave him wasn't something right now. It was, trust me, and you will see this happen. You will, you will serve me on this mountain. And that was the, I'm for sure for Moses, the defining character, of defining moment of his life when he's on the mountain with God and gets to see the, the back, comes down with his face glowing and all the rest. Yeah. I wonder if the problem lies in the fact that whether or not we can recognize a sign. We ask for a sign, maybe he gets us a sign and we don't recognize <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Most people, when they ask for a sign, are, I shouldn't say most people, um, but my guess is we're pretty specific. God, do this for me, and I'll do that for you, or make this happen, you know. Um, and I, I don't think God works that way generally, but I think you're probably right. There's times where God is at work, and we just don't even, we don't even see it. Now, I am very disappointed because um, I really wanted to get to um, verse 14, but we need more time than we have. So we have a couple of minutes. Let me just set it up, and we're going to start. I thought we would go through the whole chapter today, but um, this next section is so important. Uh, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers who sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I, what shall I say to them? And the name of God that's presented here is so profound, and it just takes more than two minutes to talk about. So we'll start with that last week. But let me, let me ask this question. 
why is, G, why is Moses asking God's name? Have the people of Israel forgotten the name of God? Is that possible that they don't even remember what God is called after 200 years? Or is there some other reason why Moses is saying, what is your name? What is that? Um, you may know what the, the name that he gives us here is? Yahweh. Yahweh. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's Y-A-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. We translate it Jehovah, or transliterate it Jehovah. Um, go back to Genesis chapter 2. And let's see if I can find the verse. I think I have it here. Genesis... Um, Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Lord there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, whenever you say that is Yahweh. Okay, Genesis 2, he, he speaks of himself as Yahweh. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's two different words for God, the Lord God. So Yahweh has been used. Um, remember when Moses goes up onto the mountain? Moses goes up onto the mountain and he is um, to offer Isaac and God provides a lamb and he says, God is the God who provides. The God there is Yahweh. It's uh, Yahweh and then the, the word for provide. Uh, when it's God, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who, every time God does something new, or it seems to be new to the people, they give him, they take that Yahweh name and they add something onto it. Okay? Um, so Yahweh's been around for a long time. <laughs> okay? Um, if, if they know anything about God from their stories, it's going to be uh, Yahweh this and Yahweh that. Uh, the God who provides, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who, um, uh, God who knows, that's Yahweh. So this, uh, God doesn't give him a new name. So we come back to the same question, what is Moses asking God for his name? Either they have forgotten or Moses is after something different. So that's where we'll start next week. So we're not going to finish that today, but you can ponder that this week. Why does Moses ask the name? And then what is so significant about that name? And I know a lot of you will have thoughts on this because you can't read this passage without, uh, without dealing with that. I am or I am who I am or uh, sometimes I will be what I will be. Uh, it's, it's hard to translate it exactly, but... Eventually that word, and we know of course that Christ used that word about himself and they tried to, they tried to uh, stone him. So, all right, so we'll pick it up next week with that. Um, like I said, I'm disappointed, but I was worried about the time anyways, and some of you had good comments, so we just didn't get quite as far as I'd wanted. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer.